Well, tonight we are going to um, begin with what's going to take a lot of weeks. Um, not because there's so much material in 1 Kings describing it, but because we have so much other material to deal with that I want to, I really wanted to do this. There are two facets of 1 Kings that I really wanted to focus on. One was Solomon and the transition into his kingship from David. Uh, the other one is the temple. And so we're going to take several weeks to talk about the temple and where it's at, why it is, where it is, and how it's constructed. And, and uh, I'm going to use a lot of um, graphics later on that, uh, again, are artist renderings because um, there, obviously there are not very many alive that have seen much of it. Uh, we have some depictions of it, uh, certainly, and we have the, the very detailed descriptions that we have in our Bible. And so we are going to uh, just investigate it a little deeper than maybe than you would expect, because I think there is some powerful imagery and purpose in what God does, that he doesn't just haphazardly give us some details to build a building and furnish it without purpose. And we, we did an extensive study similar to this over the tabernacle. How many remember that? And we actually constructed the tabernacle in here. Uh, we had curtains up and we talked about and we had you all build fac uh, facsimiles uh, uh, of the um, furniture that was in the holy place, the holy of holies, that was many years ago, but we still have at least the altar of incense in the storage locker back here. I keep working around it. Every time we have a yard sale, I have to empty it out, and there it is. So we have at least that piece of furniture. I don't know what happened. The Ark of the Covenant disappeared. Um, but that's pretty accurate because it did. It has disappeared. And so uh, we're going to go through the temple construction a little bit. And so that starts us tonight by backing up and saying and identifying its location. And we're going to look at Genesis as well as um, 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. And actually 2 Chronicles gives us a, a, a fuller description than, than 1 Kings does of this construction. We're going to spend some time in, in 2 Chronicles as well during this study. And then sometimes it's going to take us other places just because there are some facets of it that we gain insight in from other portions of Scripture. Now, um, we're talking about Solomon's temple, which is different than the temple that Jesus would have visited. Uh, in fact, um, that, was, that one's called Herod's temple uh, or Zerubbabel's temple. Um, both are somewhat accurate as begun the construction of Zerubbabel and that return from exile from Babylon. Uh, but it was, saw, it was Herod that really uh, is considered, uh, well, he's credited with all the improvements to the Temple Mount that were done, the expansion of it and the beautification of it to the point of what we see when Jesus arrives there. So we're not really dealing with that temple. And there is a difference between them, not necessarily the... Um, the location of it, it could have shifted, but that is unlikely. Uh, and we're going to talk about some of the foundation stones that have been found there. I've talked about that in the past, but I wanted to reiterate that again to reconfirm that. Um, so we're really talking about the Solomonic Temple, which was destroyed um, 
what, 587, something like that, 537. I always get my numbers a little mixed up. Uh, by the Babylonians. And so it hasn't been seen for 2,500 years, 2,600 years. Um, and so what we're, obviously we are dependent upon ancient texts, including the, the, the memory, and you might say no one's memory lasts 2,500 years, uh, but the memory of those who did see it. How do memories get passed down across hundreds of years? Well, by oral tradition. And we don't use oral tradition extensively because we have books and we have videos and things like that. But back in the day, you realize that much of Scripture comes to us through oral tradition all the way from Adam down to Moses, although there is some evidence that there was writing before that, obviously. Uh, uh, we have other written accounts earlier. Uh, the question is, how much did Moses have access to those? Uh, and was Moses the first one to write any of this down? But the evidence is there was writing even before the flood, and so it makes sense that some of that survived. Even though we don't have it today, it was available uh, likely to Moses and others. But we uh, recognize the very important place of oral tradition. And this isn't just grandpa sitting down and telling you some stories. It's a little more substantial than that, and it would be more than just an occasional event. This is rehearsed stuff that would be rehearsed sometimes every week. So you would hear the account going all the way back to your forefathers on a weekly basis. Now remember, extract from your life all of your devices, all of your TV time, all of your radio time, all of your travel time in your car. Uh, extract from your life, um, what else? Um, a lot of your work, most all of your school, subtract school time from, you go, oh, great, no school. <laughs> um, because you're taught at home how to do the trades that you need to live and the instruction beyond living was the oral tradition of your family. That was your instruction. That was history class. So make it a lot more substantial in your mind than just hearing Grandpa tell tales. These are oral traditions that would have been handed down all through the time of their captivity in Babylon they would have certainly described it. Remember the children that went, it was 70 years they were there, so that's a generation. So the children wouldn't have remembered seeing the temple, the littlest ones, but the oldest ones went to the temple on a regular basis. So they would have passed that down. Uh, and then, of course, you have men like Daniel who were young men when they went, would have known what the temple looked like and certainly was writing and, and uh, communicating that. It would have been passed down generationally. In fact, in the return in Zerubbabel, one of the events in the rebuilding is once they got the foundation rebuilt, what happened? Do you remember? They had a celebration. Do you remember what happened during that celebration? There was crying. Yeah, there was. Right. They said the people, the really old people were weeping and the young people were celebrating. We got it done. Yeah, let's have a party. We got the foundations laid and the old people are wailing. Why? Because it's so pathetic compared to what was there. Because they remember the Salmonic Temple. They said, this is nothing compared, this is just 
Well, what were they wailing over? The fact is that all they had really laid was the foundations of the temple. But the Salmonic mount and top had many structures, substantial structures. As we're going to see, some of them are bigger than the temple. Um, but they would have been terraced down so that nothing was higher than the temple. And so we're going to see you as we measure it out, and you go, well, this column, these pillars are taller than the building, you know, the building, the temple building itself. And so we're going to go through some of that. So when we talk about being handed down, these accounts were precious and important to Israel. And so they were preserved, and they were passed down generation to generation to generation in very careful, deliberate fashion, in addition to written accounts. Uh, and I'm certain that there was plenty of people willing to draw pictures. Uh, that's a great way to teach children and to describe it in detail. And so, um, yes, it has been preserved, even though it has been 2,500 years since we've really seen it um, in its condition that uh, the world would have seen back in this era. So let's back up, and we're going to start by uh, looking at where it's going to be situated. Uh, it, of course, is in Jerusalem. Uh, how did it ever get there? And so let's go to Genesis, and uh, we'll figure out uh, some ideas of why this place is so important. Let's go to Genesis uh, we are going to go to 22, I want to say. And this is um, when Abraham has to offer Isaac up in Genesis 22. And uh, this is how it is described. God says, I'm going to test you, Abraham. Abraham, he says, here I am. It says, take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him, Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place which God had told him. Then on the third day Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, the lad and I will go yonder and worship and we'll come back to you. So Abram took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on, the, on Isaac his son. He took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham and his father and said, My father. He said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abram built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abram stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Then Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, or Jehovah Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Uh, then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. He said, Behold, I myself... I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, blessing, I'll bless you. 
multiply will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sands which is on the seashore, and your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations there shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. So that is the account of the, the sacrifice, or the, uh, oh, it is a sacrifice, or the sacrifice of a ram, uh, of Abraham with his son Isaac. Now, when you go to Jerusalem and you go to that, you say, well, where's, it says in the land of Moriah. And there is a Mount Moriah, and no, the Temple Mount is not the Mount of Moriah. There is a Mount Moriah that is north, northerly of where the temple is. And so this is the land of Moriah. And so it is a whole region uh, where the ancient city of Jerusalem before be, is, is of some question um, because there are actually several community digs around there. How ancient, I mean, you're going to have to get all the way back to the time of Abraham, which is just, it's unreasonable to think that that's going to happen given the fact that it has been an inhabited city for so very long. And so um, where, where was, uh, remember, we've already had the encounter with who? Melchizedek. When he returned, remember, when um, Abraham returned from rescuing Lot. And uh, since Lot has already, Sodom and Gomorrah has already been destroyed back in chapter 19, we know that his encounter with with Methuselah, with, uh, I can't say Methuselah, but that's... Oh, I just had a brain gap. What's his name? Melchizedek, thank you. I have Methuselah in my brain. With Melchizedek, had already occurred. And, of course, he was the king of the city of peace. And so we often refer to that as a Jebusite city, the city that would become the city of David, The David would conquer much later. Um, but where was that, the residence of that city at the time of Abram uh, really can't be confirmed in any case. And so the, but it is obvious that Abram is going to a fairly desolate area, a place that, that there aren't residents there, uh, and he's going up there alone and and uh, again, in the region of Moriah, we don't really know exactly where it was. Do you notice that? It doesn't stipulate exactly which mount in the area of Moriah this occurred. So why do we have there today? Because the Muslims hold Abraham as their forefather as well, and they just simply replace Isaac with Ishmael. That's all they do. They just switcheroo, and now it's Ishmael being offered, not Isaac, and the Jews perverted it, and so um, it is our forefather, Ishmael, that um, was offered there. And so you go there, and that's where the Dome of the Rock is there, and they say, this is where Abraham offered up Ishmael. But they also associate, of course, with the connection with Muhammad uh, and his vision of heaven and such that occurred there. And so a lot of religious tradition around this region. Uh, how do we get to that one place? Uh, well, again, tradition. And whether it was passed down accurately, 
uh, remember that only two people went there. Abraham and Isaac. Those are the only two people that went to the very spot of where the sacrifice is, but he did build an altar there. And so the implication is that it would have been identifiable to others. And so we have a reasonable confidence in the location in terms of not exact the exact spot where it happened. It doesn't say anywhere that they were on the apex, the, the, the exact peak of a certain hill, but that it was there. Now we have to go forward quite a bit, all the way. This is Abraham. Now we're going to go all the way to David. So we're going to go all the way through the, the captivity in Egypt. We're going to go all the way through the wilderness wanderings, all through the judges, all through the, the prophets in, of Samuel. And we are coming to David. And we're going to go all the way through David's life. And remember, David makes Jerusalem the city of David. Um, but still, it is a Jebusite region. And there are still Jebusites in the area, which are the original people that inhabited that place. And so uh, we get to the end of 2 Samuel, toward the very, the, one of the last descriptions of events, not necessarily the last event in David's life. Um, chronology is not the important thing in many of this, and uh, it kind of uh, disturbs people a little bit when they see, and both here and in, in uh, Chronicles that it says, well, the tabernacle was somewhere else um, when this occurred with David. And so um, David sinned against God, and uh, the judgment was being invoked. And, uh, God, and let's pick up in verse 14. David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till appointed time from Dan to Beersheba. Seventy thousand men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. Does that sound familiar? It's almost the exact words that he said to Abraham. Hold it. That's enough. All I needed to see. Um, and the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So the idea that Israel owned all the land around there just isn't the case. Um, some of the original descendants were there, and they did uh, have possessions among them. Verse 17, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people, and said, Surely I've sinned and I've done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. And God came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded, and Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Aruna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why is my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Aruna, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the lord my God with that which cost me nothing. 
So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and burnt, offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord healed the prayers, heard the, heeded the prayers, sorry, for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. And so here again is this identified place that, uh, again, we don't have it described as Mount Zion yet. We don't have it uh, necessarily identified. There are several hills there. Of course, we have the Mount of Olives. You're familiar with that term. That would have been to the east. Uh, you have then um, the peninsula. It, it, it's like a peninsula. So it just kind of stretches out like the bow of a ship um, because there's a deep valley on both sides and it comes to a point and there's a deep, so deep that by the time you get down to the living quarters, you are 600 and some feet lower than the height of Mount Zion. By the time you get down to the lower parts of the Kidron Valley, just, what, 300 yards away? I mean, it's not very far away, and you're dropping, like, way down. When you hike, uh, when you go down, we, um, we went down through Hezekiah's tunnel this last trip, and then we found out that the ride up cost you more. And because we're just really cheap tourists, we decided we would hike back to the start, Boy, was that a hard hike. That was uphill. Um, and we were plodding, plodding, plodding. And, of course, you've been going through Hezekiah's Tunnel, which is a underground waterway. So we were soaked up to here or so. And our, we had water shoes on. Not the best thing to hike up to the city of David in. Just letting you know. Um, take a change of shoes with you. Just put them around your neck or something so you can hike back or just pay the money and ride the little thing. So a big drop. And so it sits as a peninsula and then to the east of it is another hill and then to the north of it there's another and then the Kidron. So you have, you have lots of hills in the region of Moriah. Uh, and, but this is an identifiable place by this point and now we have it simply as a threshing floor. So it's not a location that Israel has venerated from the time of Abraham to the time of David. Do you recognize that? That there wasn't this, this clear association with this, that this is an important piece of our history. Um, rather, it is still in the possession of a Jebusite. He's using it as a threshing floor, just a working part of his operation in the region. And they would have used threshing floors in high places. It makes sense because they want to have a breeze. Because threshing floor is a separation of the grain from the chaff, and you throw that up in the air, and you want a breeze to throw the chaff, to blow the chaff away, and while the grain settles down. And so these are great places to do this, to have rocks. They would have had oxen there to turn it, and then to thresh it, and, and do the separation. And so David goes there. Now remember, David has been at the city of David, and this is south of this. This is on that hillside. So we, it's still described today as the city of David part of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is divided up in a lot of districts, and this is the city of David, would have been to the south, closer toward Bethlehem. And so this upper region was not occupied. It, it, it wasn't venerated by Israel. You say, well, how do we know? All we know is the place where God instructed David to go by that threshing floor and build an altar there to me. And so this is directed not by human tradition, not by all of that. It is rather directed by God where to go. 
Now, again, are we told that the threshing floor is on the very apex, the very crest of the top of that hill? No, we don't know that. Uh, it doesn't communicate that. The threshing floor was on the hill. And that's going to affect some of the things down the road. Well, why is this important? Let's go to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles is uh, going to begin, and again, this whole account that we just read in, in 2 Samuel is in 1 Chronicles. Um, let's see. And we're going to get there probably next week when we talk about the development of the provisions for the temple. So in chapter 3 of 2 Chronicles, now Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father David at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornon, the Jebusite. So it was this location... And you might say, well, it says on Mount Moriah. And you just said that Mount Moriah is to the north of where the Temple Mount is. In the, all of this region was considered Mount Moriah. And that's why in Abraham's day it was called in the region of Moriah. And so all of these are considered the same mount, essentially. So if you really wanted to find the highest point of Mount Moriah, you would be not where the Temple is. Where would you be? The Mount of Olives is higher to the east. And so we're not looking for the highest point. We're looking for a specific point in Mount Moriah, this larger area that is divided up into these peaks. And we call them peaks, and we're associated with these mountains. But you recognize that, that you go up in the Sandia Mountains, there's lots of different peaks, Right? One is the highest, we call it Sandia Peak, but there are other peaks, there are other vistas you can go to um, that are all part of Sandia Mountain. And, uh, and you could say, well, here's a peak, and you're correct. And so they put the rock house out there on kind of a peak that you can look over and see on both sides. Um, and over there where the ski and the, the uh, tram goes is another place you can go to. You can see both sides. Um, it's not the peak, but it is a peak. And so we're not looking for the highest point, not on Mount Zion, not on Mount Moriah. We're looking in this region of Mount Moriah, which is really all the Jerusalem region is being claimed here. But specifically, it is the place that God, it says, the Lord appeared to his father David at, that, at the place that David had prepared on the threshing floor of Ornon the Jebusite. And he began to build on the second day of the second month, and he begins to describe it there. And so we have, don't, don't let this bother you that we go there today and you see a Mount Moriah. Well, why isn't the temple up there? It should be up there. And why is it here? It is very clearly identified there, what we now call Mount Zion, and distinguish it from the other mountains around, including the Mount of Olives and uh, the other three or four that are in the region that are described in Scripture but you're less familiar with. And so... Um, Mount Zion becomes identifiable by its distinctive shape and its seclusion. That is, it is cut off except from a, the kind of the northeasterly, I want to say, northeasterly path. Um, it is northwesterly. 
path. It's really cut off. It's really hard to get to from any direction but the north. You're going to have to climb. And I mean some serious steep inclines um, to get up to it from any direction but the north. And so when it describes the beauty of Jerusalem on all, every, all the sides of the north, that it is the northerly direction you come in is the simplest, easiest way to approach it. But the Golden Gate isn't on the north, is it? It is on the east, which is probably the worst side for a gate to be on. It's one of the hardest ones to get up into. Now, when you visit Jerusalem, every good tour group will not bring you to Jerusalem in any other direction than from the east going west up over the Mount of Olives because they want you to your first site of Jerusalem to be of the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. Even to this day, that is how they first want you to see Jerusalem. So you'll, whether it's a tour bus, taxi, doesn't matter, they all know this, that they're going to drive you around and they want you to first visit, see Jerusalem as a city from the Mount of Olives. And you're going to look across this very deep valley and of course for every tour they take you down and then you go up and, uh, but they don't actually take you to the Temple Mount because it's run by Muslims. So you just really go into the city. You don't really go into the Mount, which is quite a bit higher than the city. And so you go in one of the outer walls and you go into the city. But uh, your first view is of this Temple Mount. And so this is why it is built there. It is the place where God has intervened on at least two occasions, once for the life of Isaac and once for the life of David and his people um, the, of Jerusalem. Now remember, what David has said is, please stop killing the people of the land because God has started and had done it all through the land, and please take it out on me. So if God hadn't stopped the angel of the Lord, the 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 destroying angel that was there that with the sword um, from destroying the men of Jerusalem, the indication is, according to David's request, is please don't kill any others but me and my family. Kill us instead. Don't kill all these people here in this city. But God says, no, I'm going to stop it right now. So we have the deliverance, really, of Isaac, and we also have the deliverance of David and his children, his family, all associated with this one location that we now know or identify as Mount Zion. Within the greater Mount Moriah, which is that whole uplifted area, and of course Mount Zion is not necessarily the highest point. And it is fascinating that even on Mount Zion, they think it's got to be the highest point is where all this happened. But nowhere does it say that, does it? And so how did this tradition begin? And it really did, is uh, of since the uh, time of, of the destruction of Jerusalem, it is long since, and uh, there really wasn't any archaeological uh, description for it. In fact, if you go to the Dome of the Rock and you go inside, they will show you no foundation stones. They'll show you nothing. They'll show you a rock. What are they showing you? They're showing you the rock that they said the sacrifice was made on. That exact rock. Well, how is that possible if, the, if all of this construction had happened on top of that? How is it that that's the only thing that survived? 
is this rock, uh, bare rock. And so they have a, the dormants all around it, and it's lavish. You can't get into it now, really. But back uh, years ago, they used to let you in there. Um, and there's, this is the rock. This is the place. Well, that's not really a reasonable conjecture. Yes? A lot of this was identified when the Roman Empire became Christian under Constantine. Yes, his, his, his wife's um, soothsayer, his wife's witch, um, and, or mother-in-law's witch or something like that, yeah, um, went around, and they traveled all around. She said, oh, this is where this happened, this is where this happened. But on Mount Moriah, uh, Mount Zion, um, again, we have this identification of a place and and. A lot of it is with Muhammad that this was the, this was the rock that Muhammad, you know, was lifted up so he'd go up to heaven and came back in addition to all these other things. And, of course, they don't want to recognize David's event at all. So they go to Abraham and then to Muhammad. Um, but a lot of people prophetically say, oh, it's got to be destroyed for the temple to be built there. And I said, why? The Bible says very clearly that it's going to be shared space and uh, the archaeology back in the 60s and 70s, the archaeologists that were, that was before all of this was a big deal, when they still let archaeologists on there, um, that uh, they found foundation stones. That's what you would expect to find. You expect to find ancient foundation stones of a building. As we're going to see, they are substantial and they are spectacular. The stonework that was done um, both under Solomon, and then later they would have been reclaiming some of them under uh, Zerubbabel. They would have been reusing some of the rock there, and certainly it wouldn't have been as nice um, because if you went in and if you went and reclaimed an old barn to build your house, it would look like you reclaimed an old barn to build your house, right? And some people like that really look, but you know it's not as nice as fresh hewn lumber, stone, all that, and so. Um, we want to find foundation stones. I don't want to find a bare rock and say, well, this is the threshing floor, this is the place, this is the location, um, because I know that can't be true. Why can't it be true? Because Solomon is going to build this huge, extensive construction project on that hill. So what are we looking for? We're not looking for a bare rock. We're looking for foundations. We're looking for the foundations of terraces, the foundations of of buildings, we're looking for enormous things that are man-made, not natural. We're not looking for any natural outcropping and say, that's where the Holy of Holy was. How silly. Not possible. You, you find, when we go through and look at the construction and that we're going to see described here in Kings and Chronicles and later in other places uh, alluded to, uh, they did massive amounts of work on this. Even before Herod came in and did all of his work, there was massive amounts of work on this mountain. We are not looking for a naked piece of natural rock to identify the Holy of Holy site. If anything, its presence tells us that can't be the Holy of Holy site because you're looking for a very well-used and developed man-made site. Even in the time of David, it was a man-made thing. What was it? It was a threshing floor. Even then, it wasn't a natural installation, was it? 
It was a threshing floor. You know what they do on a threshing floor? You know what they put out there? They put out a great big round rock. And they have rocks and they have the cattle and they're turning and they're, 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 set, they're, you know, they're grinding it. They not only thresh, a lot of times they grind right there as well. So you're talking about uh, an a agricultural installation that is there. You're not looking for a natural formation. And so when I go to the Temple Mount, I want to say, where's the temple? Where's the temple location? I don't have to sit there and knock on the door of the Dome of the Rock. How foolish. And so it doesn't surprise me that the archaeologists who were on that hill digging around before the Dome of the Rock was built, um, before it became a big issue and no one's allowed to dig on there anymore, um, they identified that there were foundation stones the exact sizes we're looking for to the north, farther north than the Dome of the Rock, which right now there's just one little itty-bitty dome there uh, called the Dome of the Spirits. I've talked to you about that before, and it's an olive grove. Um, but intermixed in there below the surface, we know, because archaeologists have told us that, that there are foundation stones down there that are matching what the size and and shape that we have here. And so we're in the area that it, the big area is Mount Moriah. And we narrow it down to this mount that was the threshing floor of Ona. Now we come to a specific location and that's where the temple is going to be. But if you think that's all there was to the construction, you are going to be overwhelmed because the extensiveness of what Solomon built here um, is only rivaled by what Herod did to it. And we're going to see other buildings added on that are massive. Some of them are just warehouses to hold all of the grain, sacrifices, and things like that. There's going to be warehouses. There's going to be courtyards. It's going to be extensive. The actual temple isn't that big, um, but it's going to be magnificent. So we want to identify this is where it's going to be, but don't think it's associated with the Dome of the Rock and the highest rock, natural rock that's there. They certainly would have preserved that. No, they had no interest in preserving that. Their interest was going exactly where they knew that there had been a man-made installation called a threshing floor. That's where the location was. That's where Solomon goes to. That's where Zerubbabel is going to go back to because they're going to go right back to the same site. And of course, all Herod does is he embellishes the Zerubbabelian temple and makes it more beautiful. But he doesn't move the whole temple. And so, um, remember, we have not gone out there and dug around since the 60s and 70s and uh, since the Dome of the Rock was built and it was, and uh, there's just no digging going on out there, except for underneath. In the catacombs underneath the Temple Mount, there's a lot of excavation going on of tunnels and things that they're finding. And so that's where we are. And so why we're on Mount Zion um, and again, it looks, it, it's, you're going to see pictures of it. It's going to look like this, and it comes to a point, and it goes wide, and um, you have two valleys, the, and, and it just sits up way up high. But it's not the highest point in the region. So you can get up on Mount of Olives, on Accra, on, on uh, Mount Moriah itself, and you can look down and see the Temple Mount from above. And so, which was real important if you were of several classifications of people. If you were a woman, that was your best view of the temple because you didn't get to go to the inner courtyards. You got to go as close as the courtyard of the women. 
If you were a Gentile convert to Judaism, your best view of the temple would have been Mount of Olives to look down on it because you couldn't even get as close as the courtyard of the women. You had to stay out in the courtyard of the Gentiles. So you were another whole courtyard away. And so um, this place God has identified is, is kind of special. And it allows people to see the whole temple, even though you don't get to walk in there because you're not a man, you're not a Jewish man, you weren't born Jewish man or whatever, you're not a priest. You can still see all the way down right in to the very court, inner, innermost courtyards to right where the sacrifices are happening. You can see everything except for what's inside the building, which only the priest, high priest gets to see that anyway. And so it, it wasn't the highest point around. It wasn't even the highest point on Mount Zion. It was the threshing floor and... Um, and that's where this building is going to occur. So we're going to look next week. We're, gonna, we're still not going to get to the construction. We're going to get to the preparations the, that really began again in the time of David. Uh, David is the one who really initiates the process of getting all the materials together. And so construction was not started until all the materials were, were provided for. They hadn't necessarily gotten on site. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about that all the, all the um, provisions necessary to build it were complete. There was no way they were going to run out of anything when they were building it. And then we're going to get into the active building, and then we're going to look at how it was constructed. And so, very important place, and it's worth visiting. And uh, it's unfortunate that uh, very few tourists can actually get on the Temple Mount because the Jews won't let us there. Uh, they block it now with just masses of people that won't move out of your way. That's why we couldn't get on it this last trip. Uh, and so you really need to get up there as if you are a Muslim. That's the only way to get into there and uh, to access it. But um, uh, I can understand it. They're, they're saying you're desecrating our mountain. Um, but uh, it's the mountain of the Lord and not the mountain of Israel. And so God's intention obviously was that people could enjoy it um, from even a distance, even though you couldn't necessarily walk on it, you could watch it. Okay. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you for opportunity to look into your word. And as we consider this very precious place and this building that your glory dwelt in for a season, uh, Lord, help us to recognize the wonder of that we have access to your throne directly, that the glory of the Lord uh, in the person of the Holy Spirit is dwelling within us. And we thank you for him, and we thank you for your work in us that draw us near to you. Um, and Lord, that uh, you desired all the nations to be drawn to you, even at this location, and that you identify it for just that reason and uh, that you desire all the nations to be blessed through Abraham's seed and through the son of David. And Lord, we thank you that this can become precious to us in, uh, in, even in this age. Even though it, the, the, Christ has come. And Lord, we thank you for that. And uh, we look forward to that new Jerusalem where we'll be in your presence. And pray that we might be faithful in your service till that day. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.